0: Jude tonight, y'all. Specifically, we're hanging out in Jude, uh, verse 14, where we're going to be starting tonight. And in the passage we're going to be looking at tonight, there's a reoccurring word that's going to be used. It's the word ungodly. So a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, Now, when I began reading this passage, I, I was thinking of what came to my mind at this word used Ungodly. And what came to my mind were villains uh, in uh, cartoons or in movies uh, or in books, like villains twirling their mustache at the end, or uh, devils with little pitchforks, or somebody that's like practicing their maniacal laugh, right? Like that's what came to my mind. I think of a stereotype of villains who know they're villains. Right. Like uh, I spend time with my kids watching Disney Junior and uh, those villains all know they're villains and they talk about how they're all villains and they talk about what they're going to do is bad because they know they're bad and they're excited about it. And then uh, and if you're watching a Bond movie, maybe they go into some long diatribe explaining how their villainous plans are going to be played out and it's going to be so villainous and wonderful. And honestly, I like that understanding of when it comes to like kind of bringing that close to the word ungodliness, because I'm not that. And I love not being that. See, we humans like to think of right and wrong in terms where we are in the right and somebody else is in the wrong. The human preference is to judge in a way where you stand as the judge and you yourself are rarely, if ever, actually indicted by it. But tonight we're going to dig into how Jude perceives the ungodly who are living in the midst of the life of the church nearly 2,000 years ago. These false teachers have been bringing in all kinds of crazy thinking into the life of the church, causing dissension, disunity, hurt, and pain. Now, I was wondering how easy, as I was reading this passage the first time through, how easy these false teachers should have been to be able to be picked out. Were they like, you know, in some movies, villains are always wearing like a different color than everyone else. So you're like, haha, if you're wearing black and red, clearly you're a Sith Lord. Uh, And it's just so obvious. Um, And so that's what I was thinking about. Like, like, would they be easy to pick out? And I, I assume, yeah. And now as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to experience how Jude is going to both expose the end result of these false teachers and their villainy and reveal the character and what's at the core of the heart of these false teachers. And so the question that we're going to be looking at is what makes these false teachers ungodly and what's God's plan about it? Now, last week, Renaud was up here and he shared about uh, a book known as the Assumption of Moses. Uh, it's not that Moses was making assumptions. It's also known as the Testament of Moses. Uh, it's an extra biblical text, which means it was a book used uh, by the Jews to supplement their time in the Hebrew scriptures. And it was, it's important to note that uh, for the vast majority of Jewish believers, they never believed that these words in these extra books were actually the authoritative word of God themselves. Uh, They were instead well-known in the Jewish world. And so now Jude is going to follow up the use from a quote from, uh, from the Assumption of Moses by touching on a quotation with another one reportedly coming from a barely mentioned character in the Hebrew Scriptures, a guy named Enoch. And so let's go ahead and jump into Jude 14 tonight. Jude 14. And it was also about these, uh, these being the false teachers. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Okay, let's pause there. Okay, so if you have been a part of our Bible study on Tuesday nights, you might remember a few months ago we talked about Enoch. Uh, There's two Enochs. We're talking about good Enoch, not bad Enoch. And so good Enoch, he is mentioned in the middle of a genealogy in uh, Genesis chapter 5 where the author is compiling hundreds of years of family history from Adam all the way to Noah. And he's going to compress it with just a sequence of this person, fathered, this person, fathered this person, fathered this person, fathered this person for seven generations with little commentary until we arrive at Enoch. But in Genesis chapter five, verse 21, here's what's written. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Methuselah, you'll find out soon after, we're not getting into this. Methuselah is going to be the father of, uh, it's going to be the grandfather of Moses. And so this is the right immediate lineage towards Moses. Now Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now here's where it gets interesting. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So ancient Jewish people were fascinated with this Enoch character. This man that like that's it. That is his exclusive mentioning in the Hebrew scriptures. He is described as one who walked faithfully with God and he all of a sudden was not for God took him. That's not a description that's used anywhere else in the scriptures about when somebody dies. So there was a lot of intrigue and mystery around the character of Enoch. And so there were three extra biblical books, first, second, and third Enoch, that were all attributed to this character. And now, even then, they didn't believe that the books were and put together, and written by Enoch himself, but that these were oral traditions, his thoughts, sayings, and prophecies that were stitched together by someone, or by some group of people, to help provide additional insight into the heart and mind of a guy who would walk with God. That's Eden language. That's to remind them of what Adam was supposed to do, who walked in the garden with God. And so what's it like? I mean, if, if you heard somebody being described in the Bible as somebody who walked with God, you'd probably want to know what's your secret. Like, what, what do you got to share? And so that's where this intrigue towards these, these books came from. Now, we can't be sure if Enoch, if these were actually Enoch's words or not, but Judah's going to quote the book of First Enoch to a group who would have been very familiar with who Enoch was, what his story was, and what was written in this text. So in Jude 14 and 15, we get this quote. So Jude 14, it was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. You see in this pattern here. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So we'll get to the ungodliness in a second, but some important context, it's helpful to know about where he's getting this from in the book of First Enoch. In first Enoch, this is from the early parts of first Enoch one. And what's been said so far in that ancient manuscript is that he's been writing prophecies regarding a, a group of people that he refers to as the elect. These are God's representatives who stand in the midst of persecution and difficulty, but they're not overcome by the darkness. They face off against ungodliness and they're not bulldozed by it, which is why Enoch then talks about how, in fact, they're not only not destroyed by by ungodliness, they actually get to partner with God in bringing justice to the world. Now, in our world... Words like godly and ungodly have some connotation, right? When, I, uh, maybe you, when you think of the word godly, you, uh, that actually doesn't mean anything good. Uh, and, and It's either somebody who's really boring, or it's somebody that carries around with them an air of hypocrisy because they're so self-righteous in judging others. Or we can think of uh, the—and so then we think of the ungodly and simply uh, those, those types of people that the other type, those who consider themselves godly— have labeled because they're different. Now in the scriptures, though, we discover an understanding of godliness and ungodliness that's very different. Godliness is being in right relationship with God, walking with God, and living in light of that reality. That your actions, your thoughts, your desires, and your dreams are all being influenced more and more by that right relationship with God. And so ungodliness is the opposite of that. It is to be outside of a right relationship with God and living in light of that reality, living your own way, doing things uh, in a way that seem right to your own eyes, ways that rebel against God and his desires for you. Clearly, Jude is quoting Enoch because he wants to prove something about ungodliness, right? So what's happening? Well, he begins by talking about the complete amount of God's representatives who will partner together with their God to execute judgment on all. Now, executing judgment, this is legal, ancient legal language of what a judge did in an era where there was no jury of peers, So what a judge would do is they would execute judgment when they declared a defendant innocent or guilty. So you can have uh, judgment executed on you and you be called innocent or guilty. And so what he is saying is, behold, Yahweh is coming with the complete amount of his representatives to partner with him and declaring justice over all people. In effect, no one is exempt from God's divine justice. And he says, for those who are convicted as guilty, they are convicted of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. All the hard things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, again, this is supposedly coming from Enoch. In the years leading up to the flood, when every intention of the human heart was corrupt and broken and sinful. So Enoch would have been no stranger to the harsh realities of planet death. He had seen the darkness and he, as somebody who walked in relationship with God, would have craved the light of God's justice to envelop the world. And so it makes sense that when Enoch is prophesying about the ungodly who have demonstrated darkness and cruelty to God's representatives, they have spoken against God with such foulness, it kind of makes sense where Enoch's coming from when he says justice is coming for you but why is Jude bringing any of this up he's talking about some some individuals who are teaching some false stuff in the church now, uh, Renaud shared last week that Jude is using these ancient writings as cautionary tales, bringing back to their minds uh, legends and myths that they, that they had grown up with so that they would be uh, encouraged towards what is good, right, and true. And Jude is inviting all of his believers, including us, to ponder why is the trajectory of our desires and our actions? What's the trajectory of your desires and your actions? Where will they lead you? See, for these false teachers, they think they're doing well. They are gaining all this power that they desire. They believe the end result is whatever they have defined as the good life. Like, they are on the road to the good life. But in quoting Enoch, Jude is saying, no, N- no, this is the actual end of your quest for more. Your quest for power, for pres- Prestige your end result is death, darkness, and destruction. You may think you're getting away with this, but God's justice isn't outrun. It's not deceived. See, in Jude's mind, what he is saying is, of course, this is the reality for false teachers. I mean, they're they're not just giving people a different opinion or a different interpretation of a particular passage. What they are doing is they are actively leading others away from what is good, right, and true. They are pointing their biblical community towards darkness and convincing them that it's light. Bondage, calling it freedom. Death, and calling it life. And so to Jude, obviously, God's justice is not okay with this. They might think that they're, that they're on an okay path. It's not. Now, when I was reading this, this is the point when I started thinking about the villains who uh, are twirling mustaches or flipping red pitchforks in the air like a baton or practicing a villainous cackle, right? Like, I'm like, yeah, like, get them, right? Now, for the first time, Jude is going to dig in, though, into fully describing the character of these dastardly false teachers. So the verse 16, let's go together. So tell us about these well, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Okay, let's be honest. At first glance, this doesn't seem like the description of the worst villains imaginable, right? Grumblers, malcontents. Do you ever grumble? Me, I do. I get frustrated when I sit in traffic too long. Uh, When an attraction breaks down after I have been waiting in line patiently for it, not so patiently. Grumbling about how someone else just treated me. Do you grumble? Grumbling is human. So why is it mentioned here? See, in the scriptures, we get an understanding of grumbling that grumbling is the spilling out of a heart of deep discontentment. And we see that connection with the next word malcontents. Malcontents. Uh, you can think of that word as like an- people who are anti content. They are opposed to content, knowingly or unknowingly. They are impossible to please or to be pleased, pursuing more, the next, ready to complain their way into eternity. And so within the heart of these ungodly false teachers, what is resting at the core? Discontentment. Is this this cutting a little close to home? It's for me. When I first read this, that's not what I was expecting or at least hoping for. Maybe like these are trying to destroy you. They're trying to steal stuff from you. They want to manipulate, deceive, control. Like they're out to get you. But instead he says these are grumblers, malcontents. They were doing all those. They are doing all of these other evil things, perhaps. But it's rooted in deep discontentment, and I hate that because I sense discontentment in my heart way too often. And so you, since you have a pulse, I'm going to go out and go out on a limb and say that you struggle with discontentment at least at times. What do you find yourself endlessly pursuing? Do you find yourself scrolling on your phone with nothing really to look at? Numbing your mind in any one of a thousand other ways just so you don't have to sit with yourself for too long. See, we are discontented creatures. We are inherently malcontents. Discontentment has always been attached to the human desire to rebel against the holy God. In the garden, the serpent plays into the discontentment of the humans to rebel against God. He says to the woman, God, in essence, God wants you to live a half-life. He doesn't want you to be like him because if you're like him, then, then you've got it. Then you've got real life. But as it stands, you don't really have life. Don't you want life? And they rebel and they take knowledge on their own terms. See, their discontentment is manipulated and twisted to work in effect against the God who loves them. we like to think of discontentment that it, that our discontentment will end once I get that thing. Once I get that promotion or uh, that marriage or the fill in the blank, whatever is in your mind. But the truth is our discontentment is never with our circumstances. Human discontentment has always been much deeper than that. It has always been an indictment against God. And we see that in the subtext of these false teachers. Now, if you're a Bible nerd, you may have been wondering, why is Jude using these extra biblical deep cuts of the assumption of Moses and of first Enoch to prove points that he could have proven in other ways, just using what's actually in the Bible itself? Well, scholars have wrestled with that. And many scholars believe that a likely explanation is that these false teachers were using these types of texts to display their own discontentment with the Bible itself. See, for them, this wasn't just uh, like a commentary or some good thoughts and thinking a different way, some wisdom literature. No, no, no. For these false teachers, the the wisdom of God's word was never enough for them. They had to have more because what God had to say just could not be enough for them. And I see this in our generations right now. In so much of what we look for uh, for spiritual fodder, it's like it's like what's in here just can't be enough. It can't be what's here in biblical community can't be enough. What's, what we receive by spending time with Jesus one on one just can't be enough. So I love that, and I love that instead, what, what I might do is if somebody is using some extra biblical stuff and they're kind of using it in all sorts of wonky ways, that my, my first thought would be, well, let's just go to this and not worry about that stuff. But that's not what Jude does, right? What does he do? He actually leans into these realities. It's like he is saying, you're using these extra biblical types of books to disregard God, well, even they are actually pointing people to a God who is good, right, trustworthy, and faithful. Now, none of this should minimize your circumstances. More than likely, there are valid spaces of concerns that you are struggling with right now. There's frustrations and there can be heartache. And so hear what I'm saying through that lens But what we discovered through the example of these false teachers is that discontentment ruins faith. It poisons faith. But gratitude postures us to contend for our faith. I'll say that again, just in case you write notes down. Discontentment destroys faith. Gratitude postures us to contend for our faith. See, it's only in deep and abiding gratitude that you can wrestle with the raw reality of your circumstances without handing over control of them. In fact, this is what Paul gets at when he is sitting in prison, writing to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter four, verse 11. Now, now that, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be wrought I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here is Paul writing this under house arrest. Curious if this is gonna be the day he's gonna be carted off for execution. And what does he say? I am content. Now, is it possible that Paul's lying? Maybe. I don't think so. Is it possible that, well, Paul's just like a spiritual juggernaut. He has like some spiritual superpowers. Maybe. That's not biblical. Instead, he said, I learned a secret. And you can learn it too. It is to be utterly anchored to Jesus in the midst of the chaos waters when you feel adrift at the chaos waters, you can be anchored to the only sure reality in Christ. And see, these false teachers have been blown so far off course and taken advantage of by the serpent crafty one who had leaned into their deep discontentment. See, they didn't contend for a sincere faith. Instead, their grumbling hearts had become hearts more likely to listen to a slithering enemy than the one true God who made them and loves them. Now, here's the reality. We might think we are just discontent with our circumstances and if just everything got better, then I'd be all good. But that is like an elusive goal line that never stops moving into the distance as you go closer and closer. Because our discontentment, again, it's not in our circumstances. It's in God's character, his words, and what he has done for us. These false teachers, their grumbling discontentment has continued to move the goal line, not only of what would be, make them content, but also their understanding of morality, which is why Jude then says that they have become enslaved to their own sinful desires. They no longer, they if they ever did, have the ability to choose good. They only have the ability to choose bondage. And he even goes further and says that the way that they interact with others has even become corrupted as well. Because they are loudmouth boasters. Anyone love those kind of people? It's not easy, right? Their discontentment with God has made them attention seekers. Because they don't have a secure loving attachment with God, they're trying to prove themselves to the world. And they show favoritism to gain advantage. So they're Discontentment with God has led them to even use and abuse relationships within the biblical community for some type of church politics gain. Think about that. That kind of a person. What a miserable existence. Isn't that hard? You could even say that it's as if God has already handed his justice onto them, beginning in the now as they have pursued a life under their own course, and that's exactly what they're getting. And it's no good. See, discontentment destroys faith, but gratitude helps us contend for our faith. See, we don't get the indication that these false teachers were whatever villainous vision that you or I have in mind. In fact, it's possible. It's possible they didn't even know that what they were doing was villainous, that what they were doing was ungodly. They could have been that deceived, which is way scarier. The way scarier option than a villain who is uh, telling their henchmen all their evil plans is the one that thinks that what they're doing is actually good. See, these ungodly false teachers might've been thinking they were on the right path. They could have been deceived by the serpent to believe they were actually helping others. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that Jude's goal in this letter is to encourage your church to contend for the faith. And these false teachers are doing anything by it. They weren't contending for the faith in their own hearts or in minds or in the life of the community around them. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we contend for the faith? in our own hearts, in our own minds? How do we guard the gospel in our own biblical community? How do we do that? How do we do that when the thing that makes us struggle the most with that is discontentment? And the thing that comes most easily to us humans is discontentment. Well, this is the answer, the secret that Paul learned. I have learned the secret of contentment in all things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See what Paul has is a heart that is meditated and rooted in the gospel. And not just like with some intellectual knowledge of it. I know that I am saved by God. His heart is fueled by it. His desires have been transformed by it. Everything in him is centered on the gospel. And out of him just spews gratitude. Gratitude. For who God is and what He has done and what He has said. Now we've just entered into November, which is a month marked for gratitude within our American context. And when we imagine being grateful, uh, we can—at uh, least me—I was thinking about it. Gratitude in terms of like sentimentality, like uh, some of my sweet memories growing up on going to Thanksgiving at my grandparents' house, right? But gratitude is not just sentimental fluff. Not that those memories are just that either. But gratitude is so much more than that. It is an essential discipline in the life of a follower of Jesus. Please don't miss this. Gratitude is an essential discipline in the life of a follower of Jesus. Gratitude is often referred to as a spiritual discipline. And it's referred to that just like studying the scriptures or fasting or prayer because it takes true intentionality and discipline. It's not gonna come naturally because again, where do we default to? We are like, ooh, land of discontentment. So to stay the course, it's gonna take great discipline. In fact, discipline that you cannot muster. It's gonna take discipline that the spirit of God is gonna have to empower you to learn, to be disciplined, to stay on course but it's worth it. And it's important because discontentment destroys faith. Gratitude postures us to contend for our faith. See, biblically gratitude, it's not just taking a moment of mindfulness and reflection. And it's not just saying one nice thing as you're kind of circling the table on Thanksgiving for the meal. Gratitude that postures our heart is gratitude for who God is, what he has said and what he has done. See, this is what Paul learned. That his contempt is anchored in in those realities. You can imagine being in that prison cell. What are you questioning? Who God is, what he has said, and what he has done. But not Paul. He isn't doing what we might expect. He doesn't seem ashamed of who God is. He doesn't seem like he is stewing on how God should have been doing all these things. He doesn't seem distracted and, and in great upheaval because God isn't doing the things that he thinks he should be doing. See, that would be the discontentment that can wreck shop on faith. See, it's not that you should be more grateful. Don't mishear me. It's not that you should be more grateful. And it's not even that you're just invited into being more grateful. Gratitude is a need for the vitality of your soul. Gratitude is a need for the vitality of your soul. In other words, you need to be grateful. And I don't say that the way that I said to Asher this morning, hey, Asher, you need to make your bed. The truth is Asher's probably fine whether he makes a bed or not, right? No, no, this is like a need like, hey, if you're gonna go scuba diving, you need to check that your oxygen tank is full. You need to do that. Why? Because if you don't, you might die. That would be a bad thing. Check your oxygen tank. Gratitude towards God is not just the correct answer. It is the answer that every cell of your body, every fiber of your being was created to exist in. Humanity was created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. See, this is your created purpose. You were created to enjoy, to delight, and to live in gratitude towards God. You were created to function this way. When we are living in discontentment, what we are actively doing is we are living out of the order that we were created to live in best. And so if you're like me, though, and you're like, well, shucks, gratitude just doesn't come easily for me. It's going to have to be fought for with intentionality. And I don't know what that means for you. But tonight I wanted to invite us into a space to be able to step into a posture of gratitude. And so I'm going to invite the band to come on up. And as they come on up, we're going to do two things. The first thing is going to be to kind of like help recalibrate our mind to a position and a posture of a relational connection with God. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, uh, I'm just gonna ask that you just close your eyes. And if you're here tonight and you don't know where you stand with Jesus, you don't know about who he is or you don't know how you feel about God, I just love for you to just simply sit and just spend some time pondering where, what, what do you think about God? Where are you at with him? So go ahead and close your eyes. All right, now I want you to, for a moment, think of something, some little moment, some big moment, some moment in time where you just experienced what you could only call God's delight. I want you to take that moment and grab it in your mind and keep it there. And I want you to dwell on that moment. And as you do, I want you to take a deep breath in Out. Go ahead and take two more deep breaths in and out. Tonight, what we're going to do to experience to posture ourselves, to contend for our faith and gratitude. We're gonna take these these Thanksgiving-style thank you cards that are in front of you. Um, If you're in the front row, it's on your chair, which you've already realized. If you're not in this chair, it's um, in the chair in front of you. And if you need one, uh, please uh, just give a little hand wave and we can get that to you. Now, these are thank you cards And tonight we're gonna do something a little bit different with these particular cards of gratitude. This isn't to write to your best friend or your parent, although I think you should do those kind of things over the course of this month, especially. What I want you to do is write a card of gratitude. Think of it as almost like a journal entry for expressing gratitude for who God is, what he has said and what he has done. And so we're just going to take a few moments. The band's just going to play lightly. And I just want you to take a few moments and just start writing. If you don't know where to start, I would encourage you to start with the gospel. That in the gospel, the good news that God was not content with us living in the squalor on planet death, that he would come to bring us into new life through the sacrificial death of Jesus. There is no greater love than this. And what he had come to do was to set us free. And if we are free, then we are free indeed. And so I want you to just take a few minutes and let's all just write our thank you card. And what I'm gonna ask you to do with this card is to take it home with you. I'm not gonna put it in the mailbox. I want you to take it home with you and put it somewhere you're actually gonna remember it and see it. So you can be reminded of who God is and what he has done. You're welcome to keep writing even as the next worship song plays. Maybe we can keep the house lights up just a little bit so people can keep writing. What I wanna invite us into is to spend this month sincerely pursuing gratitude for God. Begin contending for your faith, guarding the gospel in your heart with fervent desire. And if it doesn't feel fervent yet, that's okay, press in. If it feels forced a little bit, that's okay. Muscles take a while to build. And keep this somewhere where you can read it. When you're, when you're filled with doubt and confusion and anxiety, reread this, add to it. Be reminded of who God is and what he has done and what he has said. Father, I thank you that you are kind, that you are good. that You are faithful. I pray that these cards would just be a reminder, a reminder to us that you're faithful, a reminder to us that you're not leaving us anytime soon. Lord, I pray that right now in this room that you would be bringing to mind where we are living in discontentment and that those discontented thoughts can be met by forceful agitation with what we need to trust and believe in you for, where we need to delight in you. Lord, if we're struggling with an attribute of who you are, that we would meet that with an honest understanding that you are a far more complex God than we could ever fathom. And that is a really good thing. If we are struggling with discontentment because of a space of, uh, of sinfulness and rebellion in our lives or in our thought patterns, Lord, that you would meet us by uh, reminding us that you are good and right and true and in you there is complete freedom. And where we are prone to doubt and anxiety and skepticism. Would you meet us in the truth? Would you, rem- would you meet us with your kindness? Lord, in everything, I pray that we would just grow to be a community who contends for the faith, not only in our own hearts, but in the life of our community. That we would care for one another like true brothers and sisters in the Forever Family of God. Lord, we pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.